Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 55 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley, and this is part two of a mini-series on taking on your first employee. And whilst this series is relevant to those people who are taking on their first employee, it is also relevant to other employers. So if you're looking at recruiting or you're just thinking about the basis for taking on more staff or you just want to get things right, if you've already got staff and you want to start all over again, for instance, with your new staff and give you some things to consider. So um, this episode is part two. In part one, which was the last episode two weeks ago, I looked at the planning stages, the planning you need to do and the things you need to think about before you take on your first employee. And in this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about the contract terms and things you need to consider about contracts and rules at work. So I'm going to get straight into this week's featured content. So you've decided who you want to employ, you've decided why you want to employ them and what hours and pay you're going to be able to offer them. You've recruited somebody or you're in the process of recruiting and making somebody an offer and now you need to think about your contract terms. Now for those of you who listen to the podcast regularly will have heard me talk about the fact that you need to have minimum contract terms with all employees who've been employed with you for more than a month. So you're required after the first month to ensure that all employees have a minimum terms. They're known as Section 1 terms because it's referred to in Section 1 of the Employment Rights Act. So if you're thinking of putting together your own employment contract or you've got a template or perhaps you found something online and you're not really sure if you've covered everything that you're required to do so by law, then you can just look up Section 1 of the Employment Rights Act and you'll find a list of the things that you're required to include. So those are the minimum legal terms. Now, I always advise you if you are getting a contract for your employees to go over and above the minimum contract terms to ensure that you have everything covered that you want to to cover for your business. Now the things I'm going to be talking you through today is just a short list of the key things that you would need to think about or have in mind or to consider before you issue your employee's contract. Now, a contract can include a number of things and it can be as short as a page, an A4 page, or it can be as long as a 20 page document. And I've seen various ones in between. Now, you need to get the measure right, depending on your business. You don't want to have complicated and long winded terms for perhaps a junior member of staff or a seasonal member of staff who's not going to be with you for very long. And then equally, you don't want to have a one page document for one of your senior executives, somebody who is crucial to the business. So you need to pitch it right, which is another reason why I say having a template from the Internet isn't always the best thing for your business. But these are the things, as I say, I'm going to talk you through that I think are crucial for you to consider. And certainly if you instructed me, for instance, or a solicitor to prepare your contracts for you, these are the questions that they will be asking. So the first thing to consider is what's the term of the contract? Is it going to be an open-ended contract? So they just continue to work for you indefinitely? Or is it going to be for a fixed term? Are you taking somebody on, for instance, to cover a particular project or a particularly busy period and you want to offer them a fixed term contract initially? Or do you want to keep it open? Now, what you have to remember is if you're giving somebody a fixed term contract, then you need to state in the contract exactly what the term is 
so when you anticipate that it will expire. And you also need to say, if, for instance, it's at the end of a project, so you're taking somebody on to deal with a particular piece of work, you can say that they're going to be employed until that piece of work has reached a conclusion. So you might not know the date, but then you could include the um, the expected time that it will end or the event that will take place that will end the contract. The second thing to consider when you're thinking about the terms of the contract is the probation. Do you want the employee to be on a minimum probation period so that you both have the expectation that during that period of time it will be a trial, it will be a trial for both of you and do you want to include a shorter notice period than you would otherwise for the probation period? Now what standard practice is to have a probation period of between one month and three months during which time you state that either party can terminate the contract by giving no less than a week's notice for instance and that at the end of that probation period it will be reviewed and the probation will either be concluded so they will pass the probation or you can reserve the right to extend it for a further period of time if they're not quite up to scratch. Having a probation period in the contract serves two purposes. As I say, it gives the expectation for each party about the fact that it is, you know, start of a new job and getting to learn the ropes. But it also gives you that time within which to have a formal review uh, for you as the employer to sit down with the employee at the end of the probation period and really analyse how things have gone. Discuss with them how you think they've got on and if there are any areas of improvement, for instance, that maybe you don't want to extend the probation period, but you think, well, they need to have some training around this or that, or they need to improve their attitude towards a particular area of the job, then you can mention it at that. And of course, if you're extending the probation period, it'd be important to tell the employee exactly why. In line with probation, you also need to consider what is the minimum notice period that you want to be able to give to the employee should you want to terminate their employment at any time and what's the minimum that you require from them now by law the minimum requirement is for the employee to give you one week and for you to give the employee one week for each full year of employment up to 12 weeks so you could say in the contract that you're having the statutory minimum notice period or you could say for instance that you want the employee to give you a month's notice or two weeks notice depending on how crucial they are to the business or what they're going to be doing and then equally you might want to give them a little bit more notice again depending on their role within the business and what what they're going to be doing. It's standard practice for instance for senior managers or senior salespeople to be given a slightly longer notice period um, than statutory minimum of one week for each year and equally for them to give you more than the one week. So it's just something to think about when you're preparing the contract. Next up is holiday. Now there is again minimum legal requirements for holiday and the working time regulations which govern holiday require minimum periods of notice for holiday for you to ask the employee to take holiday or for them to ask you. But it can be varied by having something set different in the contract. Now, the first thing to think about is when is your holiday year going to run from, for instance, because if you don't have a holiday year in a contract, then the individual's holiday year runs from the date they start. So they start to accrue their holiday from the day they start and then they would start a new holiday year on the anniversary of their start date. The problem with that is that you can then have various employees who all have different start dates for their holiday. Now, you can either, the standard is to have January to December as your holiday year, or you can have April to March. 
Those seem to be the two that most people go for, either the calendar year or the financial year. Then you need to think about, are you going to be giving them the statutory minimum holiday or are you going to give them something slightly more? And will their holiday include the bank holidays? So will they be taking bank holidays off because you close? Or do you work on bank holidays and therefore you'll be giving them the days? And if they're part time, how are you going to deal with that? So those are things you need to think about. Then you need to think about any restrictions in your contract to when they can take holiday. So I have a number of clients who are the nature of their business is that during the summer season, they are particularly busy. And therefore, they say that employees can't take holiday between May and September, for instance, or during the school holidays, unless there are exceptional circumstances and you can grant permission at your discretion, of course. So is there anything like that? Is there a particularly busy period of time where you don't want your employees to take holiday? You need to include that in the contract. So maybe you've only got a small number of employees and therefore you need to ensure that they don't take holiday at the same time, otherwise you won't have cover, or that, for instance, they don't take holiday at the same time as you. It's advisable to ensure that you include any particular rules there. And also if you're having a shutdown, again, some of my clients whose business is very seasonal, they will have a shutdown, for instance, over January or in the winter when it's their quietest period, And then what they do is they will require their employees to retain some holiday days to take during that Christmas or winter shutdown. So if your office closes, for instance, for the Christmas period between Christmas and New Year, you can say to your staff, you have to keep back three days of your holiday entitlement each year and take those during those days. So is there anything like that? So is there any shutdown periods? So really think about how holiday is going to work, how you really want it to work in your organisation and how many days really you're going to give them. Next up is sick pay. Now, the minimum you have to give is governed by statutory sick pay rules. So if somebody is off sick, then you have to follow the normal statutory sick pay rules. But you may want to offer something that's maybe slightly more than statutory sick pay or some kind of enhanced um, sick pay provisions. Now, it's quite often that employers will say, Maybe that employees can have five days paid at full pay rate in a year. So that covers the odd periods of sickness and, and then they get paid for those rather than having them as non-paid days while they're waiting for their statutory sick pay to kick in. And some organisations do offer even more than a couple of days sick pay. So in some of the bigger sort of uh, financial institutions and in the civil service and in the NHS, for instance, they might have, say, three months full pay and three months half pay as offering them as what we would call company sick pay. So it's sick pay that goes over and above the statutory minimum. If you're going to have anything like that in your contracts, then you need to ensure that the rules are clear. Or you can also state that you'll pay statutory sick pay, otherwise it's at your discretion. Now, if you leave it at your discretion, then there are other things you need to consider about fairness, disability and all of those things. But it's important to say in your contract exactly what you are offering employees by way of sick pay. Now, it's not necessary to have your sickness rules in the employment contract. So if you're going to say after a certain period of uh, sickness absence, you're going to kick into your absence management procedure, you don't necessarily have to state that in the contract. But what you should state and what I would recommend is the way in which employees have to report their sickness and the time in which they do it. 
So quite often what I would advise employers to do is say that employees can only report their sickness by telephone. They can't email or text message in. That way it helps to reduce your sickness levels because employees actually have to pick up the phone and call and speak to somebody. And then normally you would say, You could stipulate, depending on the nature of your business and what you do, either that they have to call in by a certain time of the day. So if they work in an office, for instance, you can require them to phone in, you know, by 8.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning. Or if they work shifts, you can say they have to phone in at least two hours before their shift if they're not going to be able to make it in. And then just stipulate what the rules are there. So that covers off sick pay. And then, of course, I would recommend you have... Um, more detailed information about your sickness absence and absence management procedures in your staff handbook which is for a whole other episode and then finally this is one of the considerations the key considerations that you should be thinking about is about things like maternity paternity and parental leave now obviously that's governed by law and there are minimum requirements that you have to provide and there are some links on my website for with details, more details about what the legal requirements are. And I'll link to those in the show notes, which you can find at adviceforemployers.co.uk. But you do need to, to think about what you're going to be offering employees. Are you going to be offering employees something by way of enhanced maternity and paternity pay? And obviously now you've got shared parental leave. So are you going to offer them enhanced shared parental leave pay? Or are you just going to pay the statutory minimum? Now, again, it can be at your discretion, but if you are offering that as a benefit to employees and that's something that you're using to entice people to come and work with you, then it would be a good idea to include the rules about it or at least what you're going to be offering in the contract. So it's another thing there to think about. So just to recap, when you're thinking about taking on your first employee or you're about to get them to come and work with you or you've made an offer, you need to think about the minimum contract terms known as section one terms. And then you need to consider the things that we've just talked about. So that is the term of the contract. How long is it going to be for? Is it going to be indefinite or for a fixed period? Are you going to have a probation period? Is it going to be a month, two months, three months? How are you going to look at that? Then what notice are you going to require the employee to give you and for you to provide to the employee? What are your rules going to be around holiday and how you're going to deal with holiday Are you going to have a holiday year that runs for the calendar or for the financial year? What rules and restrictions are you going to put in place? And do you have any requirements for the employee to take holiday at a particular time? What are you going to offer by way of a sick pay? Are you going to stick with the statutory minimum or are you going to offer some kind of enhanced sick pay? And what are your rules about reporting for sick pay and for sickness absence? And then finally, what are you going to do about maternity, paternity, parental leave and shared parental leave benefits? Are you going to stick with the statutory minimum, in which case it's important to say that in the contract? Or are you going to offer something more? Then you've got, in addition to those, you've got all kinds of other things to consider in your contracts, like restrictions. Are you going to have some post-termination restrictions for them that prevent them from working for a competitor, for instance? Are you going to offer any benefits such as life insurance or mobile phone or company car? And how are you going to deal with that? So there are a number of things to think about when you're preparing your contract terms. And it will very much depend on the nature of your business. So what you do and what the employee is going to be doing for you 
and also um, what what their status is within your business. Are they a senior employee, in which case you'll probably need some longer terms, or are they a more junior person, are they a seasonal? It really does depend. So there is no one size fits all. That's just an example of some of the things that you need to be thinking about when taking on your first employee. So that's the end of part two of this mini series on taking on your first employee. In the next episode, which will be part three, we're going to be covering the practicalities. So how do you register with HMRC as an employer? And what do you need to do in terms of your liabilities for payroll and tax and NI, all of those sorts of things? And what do you do when you start thinking about pensions and auto enrolment and insurance? So we're going to be covering all those things in the next episode. Of course, as always, if you have any questions about taking on your first employee, about anything covered in this podcast, you can get in touch. My email is alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk. And if you have any suggestions for any future episodes or you'd like to be interviewed on the podcast, I'm always welcome to hear from you. It's great to hear from listeners. So you can again get in touch by email and you can also find more details on the website adviceforemployers.co.uk. Now, just finally, before I sign off, I just have one quick ask for my lovely listeners. I have once again entered the podcast into the New Media Europe Awards. And this year, it's just going to be a few awards for podcasters and other new media Uh, providers and um, other things and what I'd like to do is ask you if you could go over to the New Media Europe um, site on Facebook and I'll put a link in the show notes which you'll find at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash podcast forward slash 55 but I'd just be grateful if you could go over and leave a vote for the Employment Law and HR podcast and hopefully we'll see the Employment Law and HR podcast in the final round for those awards and I'll be bringing more details about that shortly. So please go over, vote for us in the New Media Europe Awards which you can find on my website and which I'll put a link to in in the show notes. So once again, thanks very much for your support as always with the podcast and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.